0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Word Balloon is brought to you by AlexRossArt.com. Alex Ross Art, the place to go to buy uh, incredible lithographs, posters, original art, signed comic books, Alex Ross Editions, You name it, from things like Star Wars, Marvel, DC Comics, unbelievable one-of-a-kind images in the Alex Ross style, iconic depictions of your favorite characters, all done in the Alex Ross style. Among his great products recently, Alex Ross Unseen, his brand new art book featuring incredible images featuring mashups of Star Wars and Star Trek. DC Comics and Star Wars, beautifully painted images, conceptual art, and depictions of heroes in poses and gatherings that we never got to see in TV and films. But now, thanks to Alex, you can enjoy them in his finished works. AlexRossArt.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. It's Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntras here. It's February, and uh, I am really happy to have a boxing conversation for you with uh, my buddies who run Ringside Seat, and uh, it's a great opportunity to once again welcome Eddie Muller back to Word Balloon, one of the patron saints of Ringside Boxing, Mike Cronenberg, the art director, and the editor-in-chief, Bill Detloff. We have a lot of fun in this conversation talking about boxing. We preview the articles that are in Ringside Seed. I am a massive fan of the magazine. It is amazing. It's beautiful to look at. And uh, they are also offering print editions now, as well as their online magazine. But I have been a subscriber for uh, a bit of a time now. Uh, it's been a minute or so since I've been subscribing to Ringside Seed, and especially getting to know uh, Mike, Bill, and uh, Eddie, So it's great to have this conversation today, and uh, and from time to time, we'll be checking in with them and doing more conversations as well. Ringside Seat, the subject of today's Word Balloon. Word Balloon is brought to you by Aftershock Comics, a proud sponsor of Word Balloon for a few years now. Love talking to the creators from Aftershock Comics because they are bending genres with exciting stories, great art, and fantastic writing. Definitely books that you won't want to miss. Things like Artemis and the Assassin from my buddy Stephanie Phillips and Megan Hedrick. Fantastic time travel story, great adventure, unbelievable stuff with a slant on history. You can also get Cullen Bunn's horror anthology All My Little Demons, a fantastic omnibus that features the Brothers Drakul, Dark Ark, After the Flood, Night's Temporal, Unholy Grave, the Witchhammer original graphic novel, And two stories from the Shock Anthologies. Great stuff from Cullen Bunn. And coming at the end of February, it's Disaster Incorporated, the complete series from Joe Harris and Sebastian Perez. Really great stuff from Aftershock, all worthy of your attention. Do me a favor, go to their website. You'll find full story descriptions, preview pages of art, and the diamond codes on how to order these books through your local shop at AftershockComics.com. Word Balloon is brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners and their patronage through Patreon, patreon.com slash wordballoon. I hope you consider subscribing to Word Balloon via Patreon. I'm doing my best to present some incredible uh, conversations with uh, creators of pop culture, whether it's from comics or television or film. I do my best to give you uh, the best coverage and in-depth interviews here at Word Balloon every month. Thank you for your support, League of Word Balloon listeners, via patreon.com slash wordballoon. Welcome, everybody. It's time for Word Balloon's Big Bout Podcast. John Sutras here uh, hosting a great collection of uh, boxing writers, uh, the men behind Ringside Seat, a fantastic magazine, and annual that is worthy of your attention if you're a fight fan. Uh, They uh, do an incredible job covering uh, modern-day But also uh, great stuff about uh, classic fights and really give you a full boat of uh, not only what's happening in the sport and the sports history, but uh, books about the sport, films about the sport. You can't beat it. So we've got um, Bill Detloff, Mike Cronenberg, and Eddie Muller joining us today. Guys, good evening.
2: Good to be here. Hi, John.
1: Well, again, I've I've been such a fan of the magazine, and I think, uh, Mike, I stumbled on it. Um, I'm not really sure how I stumbled on it, honestly. Maybe through... Noir City first. I'm not sure, but I was so glad to to find it. And uh, really, you guys you guys do an amazing job. It's a beautiful magazine. I know you're the art director for it, and uh, you know uh, make it happen from a production standpoint. Bill, you're the editor in chief. Am I correct? That's that's true. Yep. And Eddie, you're like the godfather
0: of the magazine. Right? He is. No, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm the,
3: the- I'm the ringer in this group. I'm the imposter, actually. You can, no, you know he uh, helped me
0: start the magazine. Eddie is the one who helped me start the magazine. It was Eddie and 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 Nigel Collins, kind of helped me get the ball rolling and get get everything started and and gave me the opportunity to meet Bill, and um, and Bill was, uh, was great because he took over as the editor in chief of the magazine. So, um, and here we are.
3: Yeah. Which, quite honestly, I have to say that 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 was the key thing. I mean, Bill Bill coming on board to edit the magazine is what made the whole thing take off. If that if that didn't happen, I I don't know if this if this would have worked. Oh, I
2: agree. I agree. I mean, well, thank you both. But, uh, you're too kind, but thank you. <laughs> stating
3: facts. Stating facts. I know they're not popular these days, but I'm just stating. <laughs>
2: I it sounds the- like fake news to me, but I'll, I'll go along with it.
1: <laughs> Here's the cover of uh, the latest issue. This is uh, Ringside 12, and a uh, great lead feature about uh, Raging Bull. My God, 40 years ago, Raging Bull was uh, was out. Unbelievable. And uh, it's interesting. Didn't win Best Picture, but certainly most critics agree, uh, film of the decade
3: does the best picture ever win best picture? I no, don't I don't know really, that that's no, ever yeah, happened.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I don't even remember what won that year, to be honest with you.
1: That's a good question. I don't know if it was Gandhi or something like that, or I'm not I, I sure. Wanna,
3: I want to say it was Ordinary People.
1: Yes. Maybe. Maybe. Yes. Yes. Like, oh, um, yeah. Good movie.
3: Which is a really good film. Yeah. Um. Anyway, it's just, it's weird. But I, I, um, I'm going to I'm going to fill in for Nigel, I guess, because he couldn't uh, couldn't join us. So yeah,
0: technical problems. So, you know, next time we'll get Nigel on there. We'll make sure that everything work- is working right for him on his end.
1: That'd be great. Absolutely. No, I'm a longtime fan. Uh, really, guys, I've, I've enjoyed all of your writings. Um, and uh, Nigel, hell, uh, going back to his uh, books and, of course, his tenure at Ring as well. Uh, no, I'm a, I'm a huge fan, and uh, look forward to that conversation. But looking forward to this one as well, because um, what a, what a, I mean, obviously, ev- in every aspect, what a weird year, 2020, and boxing was certainly no exception. Um, being a sport that thrived when a lot of others struggled, and uh, we had some really great fights in the bubbles that uh, were constructed in this very weird time. But um, yeah, and I think uh, we're looking at a very interesting. 2021 if uh stars align and we're Mm -hmm. able to make some of these matches that seems to be the case every
0: year yeah my god i have my doubts whether any of this stuff is going to some of this stuff is going to happen um i mean i don't know bill what do you think about uh the whole thing with joshua and wilder is that even you know well at, at my point it's like my point of view is you know if it happens it happens but
2: yeah joshua wilder uh a third fight is kind of not being looked at right now. The, the bigger fight being talked about is Joshua and Tyson Fury, uh, but you guys know uh, by now, after following boxing so long, that you have to have you have to go into the into the business with low expectations. Fun you follow the sport, right? You're just because there's so many politics, so much politics, I should say, and it's such a weird uh, activity. Uh, and so unregulated while at the same time being overregulated, that uh, you have to just lower your expectations and uh, look at it merely as a physical contest that uh, between fighters, number one. And if you go in with low expectations and, and figure every fight is going to be uh, humdrum, then every once in a while you will, and you just hang in there for long enough, every once in a while uh, something spectacular will happen that will justify your continued loyalty. And patronage of the sport. It's just the way it is. And I don't know if other sports are like that because I'm not really a fan of other sports.
0: No, no other sport is like that. I can no. tell you. As, as yeah. a fan of many other sports, no other sport is like this. this
2: is if really- you're like, if, are most baseball games boring, but you keep watching because every once in a while there's a great one? I don't know. I don't know. Is that the way it works?
3: I no, I but, but I, I will say this I think that the reason for that is because the risk factor is so much greater in boxing than sure. any other sport that that's it. It's like, you know, you build a guy up and nobody wants to have him lose on his <laughs> on sure. his campaign to the top and all this. Uh, and and it's just single people, you know, it's like, there you are, you are the combatant, you know, you play right. baseball, you got to
0: also, it's, teammates the around you. it's the money and the politics. I mean, yeah. the, the, it's the promoters. It's the fact that these, you know, the fight that everybody wants is Benson Crawford. Right. And it might never happen. Right. And it might happen. And it might happen at a point where those two guys are washed, you know? I mean, like what happened with Pacquiao and uh, Mayweather. And Mayweather, right. yeah. And but, the
3: sad part about all that, of course, is that the fighters would make the fight. They would, they would do it, right. of course. But, but well, they can't, you know.
2: Yeah, that's true. I, I think, um, and I hate to, to sound like this guy, but it, I can't <laughs> help it because I'm this guy, I suppose. By this point, <laughs> is these big fights were uh, much more readily made in prior eras when there wasn't so much money on the table out there, right? Terrence Crawford and Errol Spencer are going to uh, have money for a long time until they blow it, uh, almost inevitably, until they blow it regardless of whether they fight one another. Because the guys at the very top of the sport are making more money than they, than guys in the sport ever have. right? And Floyd Mayweather, since we brought him up, uh, kind of laid the blueprint on uh, how to do that. And so guys are taking that course now. But again, people were saying that the top guys aren't fighting each other like they used to. They were saying that in 1982, and 1970, and 1960, true. all the way going back. So that's just the nature. of That's human nature, I think, and nostalgia and all that stuff, and boxing is wet with nostalgia, all that stuff. But it sure seems like it to me, like Sugar Ray Leonard and Tommy Hearns fought when they were in their early 20s, right? Right. And here is Spence and uh, Crawford are not in their early 20s, right? Yep. And the, the flip side of that, of course, is guys are fighting very well into their 30s now, and in, and sometimes even into their late 30s. So there's less to consider. I've, I'm always on the guard against uh, taking the nostalgic route, right? Because we're all... We're, we're, every generation's uh, music is the best music that's ever been made all the new generations of music sucks and we apply that to athletes and sports and everything everything was better than when we were kids so i try not to fall into that trap i'm not always successful uh because it's really hard not to but a lot of it is nostalgia so i i kind of lost my thread there uh, a little bit but uh I guess no, I'm what, you. what
3: you're saying Bill is that, is absolutely true and it kind of applies to everything because sure. you know yeah. in my my role as a TCM host I how you think I'm not dealing with people who say they used to know how to make movies and movies are right. terrible today right. you know right. yep. it's like no the truth of the matter is you know some movies are better than ever but on aggregate rank. on aggregate the majority of the movies that they used to make were all pretty watchable Okay, I'll buy that. I I, I can't I'll say that, that about every movie I see today. Sure. Like, today. I yeah. it Ten minutes and it's like,
4: mm,
3: no, I'm not going to. Yeah, I'm that. with you. I'm <laughs> with you. But, you know, yeah. I, I know, but I, believe me, Bill, I grew up with that in my house. You know, because sure. uh, my dad was a boxing writer, and if I had to hear one more time about how Henry Armstrong fought right. eight times in one month,
0: yep, <laughs> yeah. I heard that. <laughs> I would hear the same stories about Henry Armstrong from my dad. No. So, you know, and it's funny because, you know, I, I commented on that post, um, uh, about the, uh, Bobic Norton fight mm-hmm. and it took me back when I saw it, it always does. It takes me back yeah. to watching it with my father who was a fighter, um, and watching that and him saying, that guy's a bum, he is a freaking bum, you know? <laughs> I, so it, it is. It's that, And he would then go into his whole diatribe about how Henry Armstrong, you know, and, you know, he was a killer, and, you know, and how many punches he would throw in around, you know, and they don't have fighters like that anymore. This is in the 70s, and we're talking about, I'm sitting there watching the golden age of, of, of the heavyweights sure. in the 70s, you know? Yep. So, yep. it is true, you know, if you go back, you know, when you right. were a kid and when you were young, it's like, yep. that was the best.
2: Exactly. And you know what? In the 70s, Nobody was calling it the golden age,
0: of course. Of course, not. nobody
2: yeah. was calling it a golden age for heavyweights. Nobody was saying that the golden age had taken place 20 years before, sure. and 20 years before, nobody was calling that a golden age. So,
0: this is the yeah, way, the and, and, and right. as you said, Bill, you can say it about it, or, about any or, or Eddie, you said it would say it about anything because even comic books with the golden age of comic books, you know, it was throw that was throwaway entertainment, it was tossed away and thrown away, mm-hmm. you know. Those guys didn't know they were doing anything when they were creating Superman or creating Batman. They didn't know they were creating this mythological characters that would last, you know, eighty years and become like gigantic, Titanic box office movies. You know, they had no idea. They were working professionals. You know, they didn't care. And the kids who read it didn't care. They would roll it up and put it in their back pocket. How many
3: comic books a month did Jack Kirby draw? Yeah, wait, how many (laughs) pages? Holy cow!
1: Absolutely, man. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting, guys. I I bought. I love picking up used boxing books. I'm constantly combing eBay and, and Amazon and all the all the third-party Amazon merchants for various books. I don't remember the um, writer's name, but he was from Minnesota. And it was really interesting. It was during the 50s. And he was talking about how now that television had become such a big part of the sport, right. a lot of uh, decisions that and, and, and hinky decisions that they would have gotten away with in the newspaper only uh, era, yep. now there's real scrutiny and everything, and it yep. was really interesting to read that. And and obviously, you know, certainly that led to, you know, the Senate obviously investigating boxing and all the chicanery that happened uh, with the IBC and everything. But is I really that, did. That I Barney, that was
3: that Barney Negler? Bar-
1: it wasn't Barney Negler. I have Barney Negler's book, which is, oh, my God, I'm so glad I bought that. It's yeah. the best $75 I've ever spent on uh, his whole real takedown of, <laughs> that of uh, the IBC. now. Huh? Well, I've been carrying that, that book rare, around
3: with me my whole life. I didn't yeah. know it was so valuable.
1: <laughs> this was a Minnesota guy, and I know um, – I want to say he might have even been with – Uh, the uh, NBA, the former, uh, you know, identity of the WBA before it became the world boxing association.
2: The national boxing association. Pardon me. Yes. Right. So, and this is one of those things. I'm sorry, Eddie, go ahead.
3: No, I was just going to say that you mentioned TV. It's, it's funny that when you open this whole thing, John, you, you mentioned how it's so weird boxing during the pandemic has actually fared kind of well. Another thing my dad used to say all the time was you wait and see one of these days, they'll just have fights in a TV studio with no audience at all. That, that day is coming, you know, and here we are, here we are. Uh, we, yeah, I mean,
0: that's wrestling. When I was a kid, they had wrestling and oh, there sure. was no audience in there sure. wasn't-
3: and roller derby the same
0: way. You Absolutely. Know? There when, I watched, audience when, there. when I was watching the first pandemic fights that were, you know, in these, that were filmed without an, a, 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 an audience or a crowd. I thought of that Star Trek episode. I think I've told you this before, John, you know, the Star Trek episode where they land on the planet and the planet is mimicking everything that the Roman Romans were doing, but they've got the modern technology and they're showing these, these gladiator fights and gladiator fights. There's no audience. It's just TV cameras in a studio, you know, and there's an announcer there. And and hell, canned cheering how, how, hell if espn if and the top rank stuff didn't remind me of that when i was watching it was like crazy you're right about that and even uh canned uh cheering as
1: well yeah, you know right. sound effects yeah. applause and yeah. i couldn't which, think which of that what top
0: rank was doing they were they were they were they were putting in and like canned you know cheering
1: and so did uh, the the guys behind the uh, tyson uh jones exhibition I, I, you know, I, I I'll it. admit guys, I bought it. I, I, I was curious. <laughs> I don't regret buying it. Good. It's, it's, but, um, yeah, I don't know. It did, did, did any, uh, Mike said he didn't buy it. Eddie, uh, Bill, did you guys, no, I,
3: didn't, I, didn't, I didn't watch it. No,
1: I didn't
2: buy it, but it was available on YouTube a day or two later. And I watched it that way yeah. or I watched some of it that way. I couldn't quite bear the whole thing. Just getting back to the TV for a second sure. here. Uh, you mentioned that about uh, TV um, bringing greater scrutiny to decisions, and in that way, it resulted in fair decisions sometimes because the light would shine on the, on the rats, so to speak, or the cockroaches. Uh, since we're talking about <laughs> boxing, uh, it's one of those things that's good and bad, right? Because as we kind of got around to. Uh, in those days, everybody was saying, everybody in boxing was saying TV was going to kill boxing because there was too much of it, number one. You could watch boxing almost every night of the week on a, on separate channels. And so it was overexposed. And it was killing the live gate. Who was going to go sit, at, if they didn't have to, go out and pay to watch the fight live? As great as that is, by the way. Anybody who's watching this podcast has never been to a live fight. You haven't experienced boxing yet. Amen. But, but the thought then was that boxing or TV was going to kill boxing. And uh, there was some good to it that you just mentioned, John. And it's also in part uh, the reason that uh, a lot of fighters can make uh, the money they do. There are other factors, of course, in the, in the boxing economy that uh, results in them making less money than they can, and that's all getting back again to boxing politics and how everything is running for short-term gain. But uh, so, like most things, uh, the TV in in boxing has been both good and bad, I guess.
1: No, and it just seems to always be. Uh, well, the, the sport changes with every innovation of TV. You know, sure. close, certainly close circuit back in the fifties, yep. and then uh, yep. leading to uh, pay per view now in the uh, in the nineties, and uh, and yeah, now the the weirdness of the promoters really being more siloed off than ever
0: before.
4: Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Then- so I, you know, I was a fan growing up, you know, and I watched it as a fan. But it certainly seems to me that in the last, what, 15 years, the separation of the promoters and their territories seems a hell of a lot more than it was when I was a kid. You know, you just, it's like crossing the crossing the pl- paths. It's just, it just—it doesn't happen. You know, Crawford and Spence being the perfect example and the fact that BBC won't even mention Terrence Crawford in any of their broadcasts.
2: Yeah, Yeah, that's the result of there being more than one successful promoter, right? When there's one guy at the top, he owns everybody. Uh, What was uh, Joe Lewis's promoter's name? I can't believe Mike Mike Jacobs. Mike Jacobs, exactly. Nobody got a title shot anywhere unless those guys were connected through the mob, of course. But if you had, if there was, if there's one top promoter who's ruling the sport and he's got everybody, people fight each other. It's like it's the UFC model. Right, mm-hmm. Dana White owns everybody, so there is no competition, and there's there's no worry about crossing uh, boundaries. Now we have uh, more than a couple of fairly successful promoters that make money, and they want to keep on making money. So we've all got our, they've all got their slice of the pie, and don't want to lose it or give up any of it. But um, if there's one guy at the top, again, good and bad. If there's one guy at the top, everybody fights each other, but then he's got a monopoly and he can pay whatever he wants and that kind of stuff. So, but again, Aram and King were able
0: to make deals. When they were the well, top, right now you, you had top top rank was able to do something with PVC when Wilder and Fury fought, right? Only yes. for
2: the very uh-huh. biggest fights. When they say we're going to make so much money, we're willing to gamble. And then when uh, Lewis and Tyson fought, it was the same thing. None sure, Tyson fought was the same deal. And then we have, of course, competing TV networks thrown in there also. Not only promoters. Tyson was a Showtime guy. Lewis was an HBO guy. But for their enough for enough money, they're willing to fight each other and, and put aside their uh, differences and ambitions.
0: Yeah, that's what that was the same thing with Pacquiao and Mayweather and it ended up right. being a $100 fucking pay-per-view that was just right. Yeah.
1: Right. No shit. Absolutely. No, it uh man, and, and I'll tell you when the word came out about Pacquiao's uh, shoulder injury, I couldn't help but think of uh, Foreman and Ali and Zaire when when Foreman had the cut and they literally had to postpone the fight a month. And it's like where's that in, you know, for lack of a better word, where's the integrity today? Of, like, being honest and being like, hey, the guy's not ready. We got to postpone well, it.
0: Lomachenko and Lopez. Lomachenko afterwards said he had a, yeah, he, he had a, what, a shoulder injury, right? You know, or an elbow injury. Well, what do you, yeah, think you think of that,
1: guys?
2: Well, that's, that's what he said. But, that's fighter, what he
0: said. I know it's, just, yeah. I don't know if it's true, but it's, you're yeah, like, never going
2: to know if it's true. I don't, frankly, I don't believe Pacquiao was injured either, but you don't know. Really? You're never going to okay. know. Yeah. Uh, but there's so much money on the line. Like, guys, top level guys like Pacquiao, it doesn't matter if they postpone a fight. But for a lot of guys who, and there are a lot of them who can't fight exclusively for a living because they don't make enough money. You get a shot for a big money fight, and what, are you going to walk away from it? You maybe never get a shot again? Yeah. Pull out with an injury? That's a rough decision. I don't blame guys for going through if they're injured. I'd probably do it too for the right money. You know, who wouldn't?
1: But I would think that, again, in the case of, like, Pacquiao and Mayweather, like no. Foreman Ali, it was so big that you're no. not going to get a substitute. You are going to wait. I'm not sure, really sure why you didn't. they um,
0: halfway across the world too, you know. That you know, in the, right
1: that. exactly, that's another thing, too. I mean, that I mean, good lord, I know that drove Foreman nuts having to stay an extra month in Zaire, you right, know. right?
4: Yeah,
3: hey, has anybody uh mentioned it, it, I, what the fighters themselves think about fighting without the crowd? I mean, I'd be really curious to know like what effect it actually has on them and on their performance, how much the crowd stokes them or. You know, because essentially now every fight is kind of taking place on neutral territory, right? Right. So um, I'd just be interested. I can't imagine that it matters in, like, baseball that much or maybe even in in football. I don't know.
0: Football, I've Uh, heard, as far as football goes, I've heard a lot of guys, particularly I've heard about the Steelers talking about in their playoff, you know, and the fact that the crowd wasn't there, especially defensive guys saying – they needed that energy, you know, um, and, and emotion. Um, yeah. I've heard that in football. I haven't heard it in boxing. Be- but then again, the boxers, when they're interviewed after fights, it's usually nonsense, you know. They don't exactly. – there's nothing interesting that they have to say. <laughs> well,
2: <it's> because they <laughs> never get interesting questions either.
0: Absolutely. Football, yes. you, know, I mean, you know, they. they yeah. we need to interview them. We're inside See Somebody from yeah. inside seat needs to interview them and talk to them. I have to tell
3: you, that was uh, – the other thing that I grew up hearing was when they started doing TV fights, the first time they let an announcer in the ring to do a post fight interview, my father went berserk. Really? He Went absolutely berserk. And he's, he couldn't believe how disrespectful it was to shove a microphone in a fighter's face immediately after the fight and yeah. say, how did, how did you feel? And, and there, you know, it's like, That's
2: interesting. Uh, yeah,
3: it, it yeah. really, really bothered him because it, mm. Because he was a print guy, sure. right? His thing was, you know, n- nobody expected him to have a quote from the fighter right. in the story right. he was filing for the morning edition. It was, like, unheard of. You know, you're not yeah. going to get a quote from the guy. You can, He might talk to his manager. He might, you know, whatever. But he's, you're not going to get a quote from the fighter before you had to file the story, you know. But then that's another you know, impact that uh, television had was now every, you know, the cameras are in the ring, the announcers are in the ring, all this stuff's fine. And, you know, and then people, the fighters had to work on their, you know, post-fight routine. Absolutely. I've prepared my losing statement. I've prepared my winning (laughs) statement, you know.
1: Bert Sugar told me that Bernard Hopkins actually went and got uh, coaching from media-savvy people to do better post-fight interviews and pre-fight interviews. And I, I remember that distinctly in the 90s, having that conversation with Burt. And it's funny, Eddie, you say that about uh, the the post-fight interviews. The thing that really blew my mind, and it's been going on for about the last 20 years, is when they go to the trainer during a round, and the, the sideline reporter's like, so what's your guy doing? It's like, you want to get out of my face? My guy's fighting right now. I need to I need to." shout some encouragement to him get away from it
0: yeah they're doing that i know know espn does that all the time they have um bernard osuna yes over in the corner talking to the talking and there's a little side you know thing of them on camera as their fighter is going as their as their fighter is getting the shit kicked out of them you know i mean you know it's just i think
2: that particular practice uh bothers me only because there's never any, it, because it feels like there should be something interesting that he he or she, I guess, could say in that instance, but there never is. So I wouldn't mind that intrusion on that person doing his work if anything interesting or insightful came out of it, but generally it doesn't, no. uh, in my opinion. So, uh, But I understand why they're going for it. There, there's potential there, it seems to me, but it never seems to come out. Uh, about the post-fight interviews, it's interesting. I had, hadn't considered that, Eddie. So, but you're right, uh, I guess. Well, I remember Don Dunphy going in, into the ring to interview fighters right after, right? Oh, yeah, and that's man. and that's about as far back as I can go. So it's even earlier than that that your father was talking about when he first saw it. And I think back to those uh, post-fight interviews from the 40s with Lewis and Ezra Charles and those guys. And it always seemed uh, the interviews seemed to take place in a very crowded locker room. Certainly not. You're right. Certainly not in the ring. Right. Yeah. But it was always stuff like, well, oh, how do you feel, champ? And what do you think now, champ? And what are you going to do now, champ? And that kind of stuff. Nothing really, again, insightful, but at least uh, it didn't take place in the ring. And and on that subject, I, I think it only bugs me uh, because I grew up with an and I'm used to seeing in, in the uh, ring post fight interviews is it bothers me when a guy is just being concussed. Right. A guy just got counted out or a fight got stopped, me- meaning he's got a concussion. And, and there's, a, there's a guy asking questions and we expect him to be lucid and to say the right things and to be uh, gentlemanly. And um, sometimes it backfires. Uh, Juan Manuel Marquez some years ago got uh, flattened and he said after the, the referees, i got a gambling problem. And, he's, and he said all kinds of inflammatory stuff. And it was kind of fun, right, because it might have been true. And we never hear athletes say anything that's true, right, because everybody wants <laughs> to get paid. Uh, so, maybe it takes a good concussion for a guy to be entertaining or truthful after a fight. But generally, I'm opposed to a guy having just been concussed and then making an ass out of yeah, himself. Well, and, we, I we
0: and I remember when I was a kid, I don't remember in the 70s and in the 80s, I don't remember them talking necessarily to the losing fighter. I remember them always going in and talking to the winning fighter. Now, whether that was just the yeah. fights that I watched or the fact that the losing fighter got out of the ring, but, you know, but. You're right, Bill. Nowadays, you see them talking to both fighters. Yeah. Body, even if the fighter got knocked out. Um, I remember
1: uh, Marlon Starling being right. knocked out by Simon Brown and him not done. even remember that he was knocked out or knocked down. And, and, and Merchant, Larry Merchant, just being like, okay, thanks, Marlon. And it's like, well, we all just saw it. I mean, you know, yeah. the guy's obviously out on his feet still, you know.
2: I, I hate to be that guy, John, so I apologize in advance, but it was Thomas Molinares who knocked Thank out.
1: Thank you, buddy. No, no, no. Please correct me. That's, and by the way, uh, we got a correction on Best Picture in uh, 1980, Kramer oh. versus Kramer. Kramer versus Kramer. Kramer. Kramer.
0: Kramer. Kramer. Yeah. So very funny. Oh, no, that's wrong. He's wrong. Oh, no. no I, well, I, I looked, looked it up. Right. Right. I verified it on Google. One in 79, that was the year Apocalypse Now was nominated in 1980. Eddie is right. In 1980... I, what? Ordinary People was was the winner, and Raging Bull was nominated. That was 1980. Kramer versus Kramer won in 1979. Anybody can look it up on. Um, well, I mean, I, I just remember that fact I... because I remember as a kid watching the Academy Awards, and I wanted Apocalypse Now to win the Academy Award, and it lost to Kramer versus Kramer. Well,
1: it was, I guess, the awards of 1980. So you're right about that, and and Ordinary People was. Uh, because you're right, Kramer versus Kramer was right, they, in, they, they were, were, in war ceremony so in eighty one for the movies in eighty. Was, right, you're right, you're right. Awesome. So, <laughs> but that's okay. awesome. Tomas ours. That's fantastic, man. No, I uh, again, and, it's... And, it's and and I just,
3: I, I just wanted to, one other thing to add to what Bill was saying that I, I also think that a big part of um, the the insult about the post fight thing. Is just the invasion of the ring. Okay. My dad, my dad had a real thing about, you know, that's like a sacred space. You only get to go up on the canvas if you are with the show, if you are really have something to do with this, right? That's cool. And then, you know, in the '60s, it became a thing. Like, how do I get in the ring too? Right. Then, you know, right. and then the entourage came in the ring and then the camera crews were in the ring and then, uh, you know, the girls are in the ring with the, you know, the card girls and it all. Is. And it's just like a circus, which TV loved because it looked more exciting, like sure. more stuff was going on. And my dad, who in his entire, I don't think in my dad's entire career as a boxing writer, I don't know that he ever set foot in the ring at a fight wow. ever. You know, he said, I'm at ringside. My job is here at ringside. You know, he had his spot and his typewriter and everybody, you know, catered to him and all that. But he never thought like, I got to climb up in the ring and do an interview with this guy right now in front of the audience. You know, it it never would even occur
2: to him. I wish I had been alive and a boxing fan when uh, the sport garnered that kind of reverence. Mm. right that must have been great yeah. now those yeah. guys probably didn't realize it at the time how great it was and also i gotta say when it deserved that kind of reference because it doesn't always feel like it does right but uh that's really cool was uh, your dad I, gonna, was, go ahead i'm sorry uh,
0: sorry, so, sorry Del, eddie What's was right? your dad like interviewed on radio and television was he somebody that like they yeah. oh yeah want to ask You know where a big fight on on radio
3: a lot he was interviewed on radio a lot back in the day uh yeah there's some pretty funny stories about that because they used to do uh, just a real quick one they used to do a thing on kya radio in san francisco um where they wouldn't have the box the the broadcast live they would like do reports right they would get like a wire service feed And then they would do a report and then they would try to make it exciting by adding sound effects and all this kind of stuff, the crowd noise and everything. While my dad was essentially reporting what was happening at some fight in another city. And one time, um, this was very early on, and there was a hot mic and somebody said, uh, let's bring the booze up. (laughs) <laughs> meaning the, the, the sound effect of the booze from uh, <laughs> the crowd. And everybody listening thought these guys were like drinking on the air or something. And it, they got all these calls about these guys are drunk on the air. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's outstanding. You know, I um, was a DJ in the eighties and we had a UPI wire machine. And I remember following the Hagler Hearns fight round by round with the great, you know, blow by blow. And they still, and it's funny, the wire services still do it, uh, but it really was thrilling, even just to read it as it was happening. So that's the closest I got to that kind of recreation experience. And yeah, it was, it was amazing. I also love, um, I've, I've only heard, actually, I take that back. I know a couple of them are on YouTube, but that um, radio series that eventually led to the filmed uh, super fight with Ali and Marciano, uh, the computer fight that they did and followed that script. I know a couple of those fights, the, the radio versions, are on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And I've been curious to really sit down and, mm-hmm. and listen to those, those, those make-believe fights of, you know, Lewis fighting Dempsey and, you know, the like. I haven't heard those. Haven't
3: Isn't listened. that funny? We, we scoffed like hell at that stuff at the time. And now it's like, play your computer version. Right. You know, yeah. I'll, I'll be Ali, you be Marciano, and you do it on the computer now. You know, absolutely.
1: Amazing. No, it's crazy, man. No, and again, <laughs> you're right, man. The, like like Bill said, to be alive during those times. I mean, I was I was a, a little kid, but remember very well uh, the first Ali Frazier fight when literally the world did stop to pay attention to that fight.
0: Yep. And and it was on a
1: Monday night. I used to love when championship fights would be on on monday nights i thought that was amazing too and
0: you know the famous break-in of the fbi headquarters that revealed all of the stuff that you know was going on that the fbi was doing against um, uh, uh, civil rights groups and um, and so forth sds and stuff and they broke in the night of ollie fraser one because oh, Because wow. everybody would be glued to their radios, huh. everybody would be distracted, and it was a small FBI office. And they, they, so it's a there's a great book all about all of that and how they, they planned the whole thing. The whole thing was planned to happen hmm. on March 8th, you know, 1971. Mm-hmm. I also
1: love how, uh, Bob Aram was a, a tax lawyer for the government and saw the receipts on, uh, some big fights, and that's what kind of convinced him to become a boxing promoter. But look at these numbers, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, and, and isn't it, a, I mean, obviously the kids are have been poised to take over for the last 20 years, but it is pretty amazing that Aram is still running things at his age over at top rank. And I don't know how much of that is ceremon- ceremonial and, and, uh, and hard. I, you guys are the ones that cover it day to day. I'll defer I- to you guys. I don't think it's
2: ceremonial at all. And the interesting thing is it's got to be 15 years ago when his son-in-law was poised to take over. I remember talking to his son-in-law. Todd uh, DeBuff, am I right? Right. That's him. And uh, it seemed like at that time he was ready to take over. And here we are. And Bob's still kicking and kicking ass.
0: And he's in every fight, too. fight I watch. He's. He's right yeah. there in the front row, you know? and I look forward to yeah. every
1: interview he does. Absolutely, man. No, I, I, you know, and and I'll and I will say too. Again, you know, you you, you trust promoters as far as you can throw them, but uh, Eddie Hearn, um, I do appreciate and find him to be pretty candid as as a promoter uh, and and being honest about um, just the economics and everything, and and sadly showing kind of the decline of boxing. And I, I remember. Uh, one of the fights one of the American fights and they were saying why didn't you uh why didn't you bid for it or whatever and he's like it would have been at four in the morning our time you know he goes and and just the money wasn't there the money wasn't right to make the deal and I think sky got the fight instead of uh DaZone or whatever or whatever deal he has over it oh uh, i was, I assume Dizone is also
0: um the UK zone and Sky are the same almost. I think they broadcast they? Simul- they broadcast. I mean, Scott, they're different things, but I think you know you see you see the Sky signs and the Sky logo when you're watching the zone fight.
1: What do you guys think of the uh, the current situation with streaming and seeing a lot of fights uh, in a subscription way rather than even? I mean, God, obviously HBO got out of the business a couple of years ago. Showtime is hanging on.
0: I like it better than than, than pay per view. I hate paying for pay per view. I hate it. You know. I mean, I don't have the money to go ahead and, and plunk down seventy five bucks for a big fight.
1: Well, and you used to when when pay per view first started, you'd get at least two or three decent fights on the card, and now it's all you know padding, other than the main event. And and Bill, I've done the same thing. What, what you were saying about the uh, Tyson and Jones fight and everything. I, there are many pay-per-views that you know I'll scan around YouTube and the next day there might be an Eastern European feed uh as far as the the language that's being broadcast in. But you know, we we you know much like much like most sports, you, you don't need to play by play guys. You can see what's right. going on. Exactly. You can figure it exactly out. Right.
3: Kind of well, like Ma- Michael, Michael taught me Michael taught me how to pirate fight. So <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: I don't I don't mind the streaming if the alternative is to not see the fights right? TV is getting out of the boxing business. So, uh, and there's still a market for it. So <coughs> streaming services popped up and good.
0: I know I'm with bill. I like, I mean, I, I subscribe to the zone and I actually also at ESPN plus me too. Um, and I get showtime also, but, um, and I like the fact that the zone, you know, I'm, you know, it's. I got how much it is per month, but, you know, you're getting a regular, a pretty regular stream of fights, you know, with, you know, I don't know, maybe three big fights per year, maybe, you know, but you're getting boxing at least. Um, yeah. So I prefer that to having to sit there and pay 75 bucks for a pay-per-view. And what I've noticed in those pay-per-view fights lately over the last couple of years is that the undercards stink. You know, the only thing that's good is, is the main event. You know, yeah. and it used to be a, a big fight. It used to be, you'd have like a bunch of fights that were really good in the in in the uh, in the undercard.
1: Absolutely, I remember covering uh, Chavez Frankie Randall too. And I know after uh, Randall passed last month, um, I was thinking about that fight. And I know there was um, God. I I want. I know there was a Terry Norris fight on that card, I, maybe I'm misremembering. But there were at least at least two other. Decent, you know, championship defenses going on. Maybe it was uh, Julian Jackson, you know.
2: Yeah, that's what uh, Don King's cards were often good like that because he had so many guys and he had to get them work. Right, you know, and you'd get great fighters like Julian Jackson or Terry Norris fighting deep on an undercard. There's nobody in the stadium to watch him. Nobody in the to watch him. <laughs> you know how it goes because those guy, people show up for the main event, right? That's right. You're right. And, and underneath the Tyson main event, you got Julio Cesar Chavez fight. You got Terry Norris. So you got uh, uh, Julian Jackson, like I said. And uh, that's just the way it was. The king had to get those guys fights. Yeah. You know? And that's why his pay-per-view cards were often good. I remember, I forget, we talked about this a lot when I was at the ring in the 90s. And uh, I can't remember which promote. It might have been Aram. Or it might have been main events. There, there was a discussion about a Lennox Lewis pay per view. And one of the promoters came out and said, uh, You know, we did a survey and we found out, and it was an unscientific survey. And, and maybe survey isn't even the right word to use, but they did some research that told them uh, outside of the hardcore boxing fans, um, which is a regrettably small group these days, um, people buy pay per views for the main event. They don't buy the pay-per-views for the undercard. So what's they're just throwing money away yeah. by uh, investing in a, in a good undercard. But interestingly, uh, the UFC pay-per-view cards do great because they're stacked from top to bottom with competitive fights, not showcase fights. So I don't know if there's a difference in, in how boxing fans and uh, UFC consumers do their thing, but um,
1: I don't know. Well, and you'd think that they would use these undercards to groom – future lead pay-per-view stars and that you would do it the way that they used to do it 30 years ago and it's and it really it it doesn't make sense to me because i mean it's so easy to neglect the lighter divisions and in fact i wanted to ask you guys which division you think is the hottest division that the general public doesn't pay attention to would it be the welterweights would it i mean i know the middleweights are certainly loaded with a lot of talent light too, too. Um, and the lightweights absolutely
2: you know, the lightweight division is very hot right now. A lot of good young fighters who seem willing right now, at least, to fight one another. Uh, so we'll see how that works out. But they're all, you know, they're all uh, out there asking for, uh, you know, retirement money to fight each other. So we'll see how that goes. But um, that's just the way it is, you know.
1: And I don't know where the hell Al Heyman gets his deep pockets because it seems to me he's been mortgaging uh, his, uh, you know, uh, his whole promotion. For years now and it's like when does when does the bottom drop on that?
2: Yeah, I don't know. He's got his investors have very deep pockets and uh uh there are all kinds of rumors about where that money comes from. I don't know. And I have mixed feelings about uh him and the way he pays his fighters in general, because in the eyes of many, uh he overpays his fighters, right? And this is why we get guys fighting once a year. I don't feel <laughs> my,
0: yeah. right. my dogs are fighting. My dogs are fighting.
2: Nice. Yeah. Uh, what
0: I go through every day. Like <laughs>
3: they've two, been listening to this. Five,
0: two five-year-olds.
3: Put them on an undercard.
2: Absolutely, man. <laughs> so a lot of people think that he overpays their fighters, which, is, of course, if you're gonna if you're gonna get five million for a fight, why would not you fight more than once a year, right? Uh, but I kind of like that. It's a little wealth distribution. You know, fighters ain't rich. <laughs> They're not born rich. They're not, uh, or they wouldn't be fighters. So I kind of like uh, that guys are uh, who wouldn't have it otherwise are getting paid good money. It's not good for the sport, but it's good for them, you know. Fair but enough. I but I can't apply that to everything. You know, I could say something like uh, multiple uh, weight classes that aren't necessary and multiple championships that aren't necessary are good for the fighters in a respect, but not for the sport. So I wouldn't say that because I'm so uh, sick of all these multiple champions and weight divisions that aren't. Are just superfluous
0: and, and more and new ones being added. This yeah,
2: it's just crazy. It's crazy. Your father would uh, be aghast if he was uh, if he was offended over a reporter getting into a ring. Eddie, imagine how we'd think. Imagine how we'd feel about a uh, thirteen uh, super flyweight WBA interim champions. Okay. No. <laughs> Diamond God, champions,
1: right. all that stuff. Yeah. No,
3: I was I, I was I was there in a very impressionable age when they started uh you know breaking everything up and having multiple belts and all that stuff. And and you know no, you're absolutely right, Bill. My dad did not uh go for any of that nonsense. To him, there was always just eight eight champs and that's it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I want to ask you a question because I'm wondering everything that we were just talking about in regards to the sport and streaming all the same, all the same stuff applies uh, to the movie business as well. Really? Is that right? And, and I'm curious if you could imagine a future in which streaming allows for a return to like um, the circuit club fights and all this stuff. Like, like you could have a, a venue sell subscriptions to their fights streaming online. And then you could, I, I could go to the horizon, you know, or something and watch a fight and just see them regularly. Uh, but now, because I guess the, the money is so concentrated in one place, I don't know if you're going to see that, but I, I could easily imagine through the technology that you could actually be attending fights at different venues on a regular basis streaming as opposed as opposed to everything being funneled into one uh you know channel on cable tv or something Uh, i don't know what it would do to the quality of the competition or the or the quality of the product but um it it it's just something that occurs to me because this is sort of like what i'm dealing with now you know as people are saying will the movie business survive Will you see movies You know in a live venue or is everything going to be streaming and just what you were talking about like people are only going to go pay to see it appears in the future people are only going to go pay to see a big event movie that they want to see it on a huge screen or something you know and and otherwise i'll just stay home and watch uh you know since i work for one of these big services i'm not allowed to say the name of a competitive streaming service Right. right um you know it 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 seems like things are going to be different in the near future
2: yeah and you know what uh, the next generation it will be normal to them so it's just like that with every generation right uh what seems so foreign <laughs> and objectionable to us because it's not the way it was when like we were here yeah it will just be normal to them there are there are uh, young boxing fans i interact with on twitter who who weren't alive when there were one or two champions per division, or when there were eight divisions? So this is normal to them. So Eddie, to your point, it's it's not going to matter. <laughs> we're going to be gone. We're going to be gone, and that's just the way it's going to be. And they're going <laughs> to read the books. They're, they're going to say, "Real holy shit! People used to go out to see movies. What was that like?" And that's just the way it's going to be. Nobody
1: and by knows. the way, I thank you guys, And especially Bill, for the books that you write in terms of. Uh, chronicling boxing history. I know uh, later this year, your Matthew Saad Muhammad book is going to be coming out. Looking yeah. forward to that. I love your Ezra Charles book. I Thank really, absolutely, man. No, it's, I think, again, in both cases, I really think these are uh, champions that could get forgotten by the general public and, and then, they had uh, amazing careers.
2: Yeah, and uh, I was thinking recently along those lines, and I'm glad you brought that up. I feel like these this current generation of fighters, there will be no books written about them. Yeah, because um, well, not any good ones, I imagine, if any at all. And not because I won't be writing them, but because uh, if you're writing about a historical figure, you're getting most of your stuff from old newspaper articles. And guess what? There ain't no newspaper articles <laughs> about <Nazis> anymore. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like they're not there. You can't write a biography based on a magazine article in Ringside Seat about Shane Mosley or. Uh, about Devin Haney. It's 30 years that somebody wants to write a book about Devin Haney and he's dead. Guess what? It ain't getting written because it's going to use for research They're in their newspapers.
4: Yeah. yeah.
1: I, you know? I, I was pleased to see that the occasional boxing film documentary is still pretty yeah. solid. Man, I'll tell you, I love the one and it really blew me away of how good it was. The one about Sergio Martinez I thought was yeah. from a couple of years ago. I thought was Really, really good. I believe it was on Amazon Prime. I think that's where I caught it. And um, man, they even went inside a WBC um, convention when the promoters are discussing the ratings. And it oh. was the, it was uh, during the whole time when uh, Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. and the justification of uh, giving him a belt when Martinez was still middleweight champion and stuff. And they yeah. they had this great video footage and stuff. So that kind of that impressed me. And sadly, much like most uh, subjects and how uh, we've gone from books to film and television and stuff. Yeah. yeah, I think that's, you know, likely likely the path now, too, for uh, chronicling the history of boxing.
2: Yeah, that's a good point, John. Boxing still lends itself so wonderfully visually. You can never take that away. You can, uh you can't go into the uh, details in a, in a documentary the way you can in a book, of course, right? Because nobody's going to make an 18-hour documentary about Devin Haney someday, right? <laughs> um, so for research purposes, it probably won't be great. But uh, it's all just so great uh, aesthetically. Mm-hmm. That it, it's so well, great it's for film. Fun. That'll never go away.
3: And isn't it, about, isn't it and kind of
0: fascinating? Flaccion- the best books about sports are usually are mostly the books written about boxing, yeah. same with movies, the best movies, docu- even documentaries, but, um, and feature films about sport is about boxing. It's still compelling enough that artists want to write about it, film it, paint, yep. draw. It's true. On.
3: Yeah, there's, there's, there's more drama in boxing than in any other sport. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's it. But isn't it interesting, Bill, that, um, as you point out, I mean, boxing is a, a, is a very marginalized sport now. And I'm always amazed that there continues to be so many movies right. that continue yep. to get made about boxing yep. uh, that it never goes out of fashion. But it intrigues me that more people would probably rather watch a movie about boxing than boxing itself, <laughs> right. which defeats the entire right, right. drama, right. Of, because you actually don't know how it's going to end when right. you watch a fight. You You're know? absolutely that, right, Eddie. But I get That is it. the whole purpose of watching the right. fight: is you right. do not know how this is going to end.
2: I completely get what you're saying, but I get why people would rather watch the movie than actual boxing. There's no bullshit in a movie that you got to sit through if it's a decent movie, right? There's no WBO, super lightweight interim belt champion, and you're going to have a good fight in it, and things are going to work out the way you want to. That's why people still like professional wrestling, right? It's going it's to gonna cater to your emotions, right? And sometimes in boxing, the shitty guy wins, or a, guy, a fight gets stopped incorrectly, or there's a bad wrestling. decision, or all kinds of shit can go wrong. That's not going to go wrong in a movie. So I get it's like uh, a film about boxing is even if it's uh, uh, gritty and grimy and true to life in some ways, it's a romanticized version of real boxing, right? I mean, we all like that shit better than the real thing. That's why we watch films, right? Well, but you. But
3: you but Bill I'm going to say that right at the top of this show you said if you haven't seen boxing live you haven't seen boxing.
2: I absolutely agree. Yeah, that's absolutely true. But convince somebody else of that. And you <laughs> nope. know but you know what yeah, yeah. if I could take a guy off the street who's not a boxing fan and take him to a live fight I'll get him hooked in a second. Yeah, that's true. What's but the best
1: fight you guys saw live? <laughs> I'll uh, I'll start I'll say uh Michael Nunn uh, losing to James Tony. Oh, that must have been great! That was a fantastic, the best fight I ever covered.
3: Uh, I'm going to say this is uh, be weird, but there was a fight in San Francisco at the Civic Auditorium. I can't even tell you who the boxers were, but the trainer—I'm not going to say his name. I don't because I'm sure his daughter is still alive. She wanted to sit at ringside for this fight, and she sat in my lap heard this story and it's yeah and essentially i got the world's greatest lap dance during this fight because <laughs> she was so excited what was happening in the ring <laughs> anyway that was just you know oh, that's uh, <laughs> and i didn't uh you know i didn't see the fight I, I was i was supposed to go with guys to see the uh bobby chacon bazooka limon fight in sacramento wow. uh but my dad died and so there were a bunch of guys who came to his funeral, who then went like in a caravan up to Sacramento. We we were really good uh, friends with the promoters Don and Lorraine Shargan.
0: and I and I remember
3: I remember saying to Lorraine, "So who do, who do you think is going to win this fight?" And she says, "I'm rooting for the rare double knockout." <laughs> <laughs> she hated them both. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I think, uh, John, this wasn't, I don't know if it's the best fight I've ever been to live, um, but the best atmosphere and the, the most exciting result was um, Bernard Hopkins beating um, Kelly Pavlik in Atlantic City. Okay. Okay. Everybody thought Bernard was washed up, right? And Pavlik was the big gun, the big young gun. And Bernard took him to school. Now, the interesting thing about that, of course, is. Um, even though it was in Atlantic City, which is, you know, a stone's throw from Philadelphia, the whole crowd was there for Clay Pavlik rather than Ron Hopkins. Wow. But halfway through the fight, when the crowd saw who was getting his ass kicked, as crowds do, they flipped, and it was really exciting to see and experience in the crowd going crazy for Hopkins, the old man who uh, dealt Pavlik uh, a beating
0: that night. That was really fun. So that was
2: a memorable one for me.
0: How about it, Mike? I've not been to any like major fights, but my dad used to take me to the fights um, at the Miami Convention Center. Wow! Which is where Clay Liston took place. Absolutely. So um, we would just he would just see club fighters. It was club fighters, and it was you now it was young, but nothing, no, no memorable great fighters. Maybe there were, and I don't remember. Guys who went on to become, you know, excellent good fighters. But uh, and that
2: goes back to your. I'm sorry, Michael. Um, that goes back to your point, Eddie, uh, about uh, live fights. It doesn't have to. It can be a Golden Gloves fight, a live fight, being in a live fight, and hearing leather smack skin, or even headgear, and and hearing punches land, and um, and I'm watching uh, Crown's reaction to a real fight, to a live fight. I, imagine, I can't imagine anybody not getting hooked on boxing experiencing that. Well, I can't say that because I took my daughters to a live fight in Philly a couple of years ago and they couldn't have cared less. So I can't I take back. I don't know how anybody couldn't, but I can't explain how uh, it wasn't exciting to them being on a live fight. Um, it's just there's nothing, no, no experience like it. And I've been to live baseball games in younger days and live football games and, of course, live basketball. But it's nothing like being at a fight live and feeling that tension in the ring. And one of my favorite things to do out a of, out of fight is to uh, look around during the course of the fight and watch crowd reaction, watch the people who are watching the fights. That is just so much fun because there's so much emotion. People get so engrossed in a fight, you think they're fighting. And you don't even have to have a loved one in the ring, right? It's just if it's your guy and you're rooting for him, you're so engrossed in it. It's so much emotion. It's great.
0: So and we uh, we we tried to capture that in the yep. ring Club seat. Um, yep. I think yep. it was issue three. I think we, we went ahead and had uh, kite mm-hmm. Yep. Go ahead yep. And, and film. Just I don't know what fight it was. Do you remember what fight it was, Bill?
2: No, I don't remember. Um,
0: just fight. Just shoot everybody in the the crowd. In the crowd, yeah. And uh, And we got some great shots. And in black and white. I asked him to film, to shoot it all in black and white
2: also. Right, right. So if anybody watching this hasn't been to a live fight, when all this crap is over and we can get back to normal and uh, go to fights in our hazmat suits, uh, (laughs) go to a live fight and experience a live fight because there's nothing like it.
1: Nothing like it. Absolutely, man. I agree. And got to cover my share of... uh, uh, fights at the garden and also, uh, fights in, uh, Vegas, Atlantic City as well. And, uh, there is something about, uh, th- that atmosphere as well. Um, I remember, uh, covering, um, Lennox Lewis, Hassim Rockman, uh, the rematch in Vegas. Mm. And, uh, that was, that was a terrific night. And when you talk about people watching, Bill, absolutely. It oh, was yeah. just yeah. Lo- loaded with celebrities and just loaded with amazing people. And, uh, that whole weekend from Wednesday through Sunday, uh was just just a fantastic 5 days of, of fun for me and I, I hung out with uh my old buddy Bert Sugar and everything and uh I got I worked with Bert a long time and, and uh, then writing for him for boxing illustrated but then also being with him at uh you know fights when I was covering it for radio or TV and uh, always a great time and just the, the the funniest guy in the world and everybody wanted to talk to him of course. so we met everybody and I was kind of his caddy for the nice. weekend stuff so we did that and I also remember uh um, it was the De- – day I want to say it was the De La Hoya-Fernando uh, Vargas fight. Uh, we had Bud Schulberg with us. Okay. And the great Bud Schulberg, the heart yeah. of the fall, of course, and uh, on the waterfront. And, you know, he was getting up in years. And um, yeah, nice. Britt's like, you know, Bud, maybe we're going to get you like a chair or something and we'll we'll push you around. He's like, shut up. I don't need a chair, I, whatever. Thanks. But it was a lot of walking. So about 10 minutes later, he's like, you know, a chair, uh, getting a chair might be a good idea. We're like, <laughs> hey, no problem. He's like, well, who's going to push me around? I'm like, buddy, it would be my pleasure to, to to be your guy and everything. So I did it. It was fantastic. And we just, the three of us had the best time nice. and it, it was, it was, it was great. And I really, I, guys, I'll say this too, uh, for being, uh, print guys and everything. I love, uh, being on press row and just, oh, hanging with, just shooting the shit with the other reporters and stuff like that. Nothing it is, like that.
2: it is fun, but you know what? Something else has changed in, in, uh, Boxing. A lot of guys who aren't writers anymore in the press get somehow get tickets to press row, and they act like fans in press row. That's and that's bullshit, right? And the other thing, it's even worse, is the post fight press conferences now. Every fighter's got their family there, and everybody's got their cousins and there's girlfriends and everybody, and it's like it's not for press anymore.
1: It's a zoo. It's no, no you're right. It's terrible.
2: Yeah. But one more thing about live fights, if I could say, because I think this is poignant sure. uh, for me at least. My daughter's a senior in college now. And uh, at all their parties, one of their favorite songs to play is Thunder by ACDC, all right? Okay. They weren't even born yet when ACD wrote that song or started him out with that song, all right? But that's kind of beside the point. But we were talking about that recently. And I told her that this fighter named Arturo Gotti would come out to that song because that was his nickname. And I'm getting chills not thinking about it. Being in, an, in Atlantic City Convention Hall, At a Notoro Gotti fight, and the crowd was just electric, sold out, and thunder starts playing, and Notoro Gotti comes out. Again, I'm getting chills right now. Unbelievable. That's great. I I couldn't convey to her what that was like. You know, all she knows is it's a cool song. But picture it blasting, and Notoro Gotti is coming out of the tunnel, and the crowd, 5,000 people, are going insane. There's nothing like that. There can't be. I can't see how there could be.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm envious right now. That's great.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it was tremendous. I was at the. the least exciting of the uh, Gaddy uh, Mickey Ward fights. I got the second one, which was still a good fight, right? But nothing like the first or the last one. Uh, but any time you went to a Gaddy fight, it was just crazy. It was just so great. If you didn't mind slipping on everybody, all the Guido's hair gel in the crowd. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> if you could get past that. Being at a Gaddy fight, the crowds were just—it was so great. And, then that, and that song came on and he came out. Oh, unbelievable!
3: And and so great. and and to to my point again part of the thrill is this guy is willing to put it all on the line and you have yeah. absolutely no idea what's going to happen. Is, is Gotti going to pull off the greatest win of his career or is he going to actually die in the ring? Which was yeah. always a possibility with For him, sure. right? It like
1: it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, right really. That, man.
1: Um, I got, you know, I've got some images from, uh, is this from uh, issue 12 or this is from issue 12. Stuff I sent you
0: today was issue 12. Yeah. Yeah. So that's,
1: there's a great uh, great article uh, from from uh, Mike's brother Steve yep. about uh, Rocky Marciano, Graziano, Graziano, pardon me. Yeah, man, man. Yep, yeah, great piece.
0: That's uh, now in print. Indeed, right there. Yeah, so you can get you can get it on in print from Amazon, but you know all on our website. If you go to our website, ringsideseatmag.com, you know everything's there. You can get digital subscriptions and links to ordering. The magazines and our books, our annual books, and I, I've said this on John's show before, but Ringside Seat, the business model that I started with it is based on the Fillmore Foundation, what Eddie did with the Fillmore Foundation. So I'm indebted to his him being the role model kind of for for how Ringside Seat got started and the idea of getting Ringside Seat started.
3: Well, that's, that's nice of you to say, Michael, but I'm, I'm going to turn this right around on you because it really wasn't until Michael came on board as the art director of the Noir City magazine that we developed that model. I mean, Michael, <laughs> Michael was really uh, essential to the whole idea of transforming the magazine from kind of a newsletter into a real magazine and, and doing it electronically, you know, and then... Uh, you know, and and I will say, Ringside Seat is ahead of the of the, Film Noir Foundation model, in the sense that uh, we've never put out a print issue, right? And now you guys are doing the print on demand, single issues, which right. we have never done. I mean, we put out an annual at the end of the year where we we cherry pick the best stuff from the year. Uh, but we've never done on demand for single issues, and every time, every single time I see an issue of Ringside Seat in, and hold it in my hands, I say, "What the hell's wrong with me? Why are we? Why are we not doing single issues like this?" You know.
1: Understood. Well, here I'm going to show some more visuals. Look oh, at yeah, that's uh, Nigel's piece and... on uh, Dick Tiger. That was a great article. Oh man,
2: it sure is. And if I can jump in, since we're in the. Uh, um, the stage of the show where we uh, praise one another. <laughs> I'll start, I'll say that, uh, as, we, as we said, Nigel couldn't be here, but if, if the stuff that Michael and Eddie said at the top about uh, me bringing value as the editor to the magazine is true, and I'm not certain that it is, but if it's true, it's only because I worked under Nigel uh, with him as my editor for 15 years at The Ring and the Associated Magazine. So uh, if I have any worth there as an editor-in-chief it's because I learned uh, from Nigel. And uh, and again, since again, we're uh, uh, blowing one another here, uh, the, <laughs> it's only because of Michael that the magazine looks as good as it does. We can have the greatest writers in the world. and. Uh, I'm biased, but I think we do the greatest fight writers anyway, but nobody would be reading it if it
1: wasn't so, uh, visually stunning. And, and that's all Michael's work. Well, again, uh, that's why I'm happy to like show some of these, uh, opening uh, pages and stuff. Yeah, so Babs
0: McCarthy, tell me about Babs McCarthy. That's a great story. Bill, you, you should probably talk about that. Glenn's. Glenn.
2: Yeah. Glenn Sharp, uh, is a really good writer. who's written a couple books, a novel, and then a, a memoir of his own boxing days. And, uh, Babs McCarthy is, uh, prototypical sad story in boxing, sad but wonderful, and that's again uh, good and bad, and I'll be brief about this. A typical guy who uh, didn't have anything else going on in his life uh, except for the short period of time he was a boxer, and boxing gave him a reason to get up in the morning and to live his life and, and to hope for something better. Uh, never really achieved anything better, but it gave him a reason to live, and uh, didn't go his way. Uh, as it doesn't most of the time for most boxers, even the very good ones. And uh, it ends with him uh, dying under suspicious circumstances. And uh, that wonderful piece uh, ends, has the best conclusion of any, I think, magazine article, magazine article, any article we've run in Ringside Seat. Uh, It concludes perfectly. And I'm not going to say what that last line is. Uh, so you'll have to, uh, anybody listening will have to get that issue to read that piece on Baz McCarthy, who you probably almost certainly will not remember as a fighter. But after you read this article, you remember him from the article. Nobody knows who Baz McCarthy is in terms of what he did in the ring. But if you read this piece, his story stays with you. And that's a credit to uh, the writer, Glenn Sharp. And again, the, uh, the conclusion of that article is uh, the best conclusion, or at least my favorite conclusion, of anything that
1: we've published that's awesome man here's another great piece uh that uh about uh perfect endings the uh, last bouts and uh people that went out uh dramatically in a, in a in a good way and i'm assuming that's uh marciano after uh don uh is it don cocknell was that the last uh the last fight. the last yeah,
3: right. fight was in san francisco i i I have a lot of stories about that one. <laughs> the really? rock was in San Francisco, but I, I'm
2: not gonna.
0: <laughs> that was a candlestick, wasn't it?
2: No, it was a Keysar
3: Pavilion. Kizar.
0: I mean Keysar. I'm at Keysar. Yeah. Okay. Yeah,
2: that's a really good story too. And and the author uh, or the writer of that piece is Ronnie McCluskey. You can see the byline there. And uh, one of the things I like about um, the crew I have writing for me uh, is they're not all U.S. based. Ronnie's in Scotland. And, uh, excellent I don't I don't know if you would know uh, that if you didn't if I didn't say it right which is not to say it's that's good or not or better or worse but the point is uh, he's in Scotland so has uh, a different point of view maybe being in Scotland than he might in the US but he's a terrific writer either way uh, who always has good ideas for uh, um, evergreen features like that one. And that was a good one, of course, because again, we all know how uh infrequently uh endings are positive in any area of life, mm-hmm. right? There's no such thing as a happy ending. Uh, and especially in boxing. Uh, but that's a, a rare uh look at the times that it, it went it did end well for boxers at the end of their careers, the guys who got out on top and on time.
1: Agreed. Absolutely. And then uh there's also I gotta bring it up, uh, and I'm always fascinated by uh this amazing uh, fighter from the 20s, and that's Harry (laughs) Greb. You know what? This this is another really good piece by
2: uh, Gary there. You can see his byline, who is a great historian. And when I say historian, I mean like going way back, like the turn of century fighters. And uh, there's currently this feeling about Harry Greb among uh, modern boxing fans that I just don't understand. Many of them are under the impression that because there exists no – Footage of him fighting that we can't possibly place him historically uh, at all. Never mind high up on the list, which is baffling to me. It's just a big joke on Twitter that people do that. That we that we revere him uh, because there's no film of him beating anybody. The guy beat Gene Tunney in Tunney's prime. The guy beat every guy out there. He's fought. He's fought. He th- fought three or four times a month. Long title reigns, he uh, was praised by everybody he ever fought. The press of the time absolutely adored him. Every guy was given Jack Dempsey fits in their sparring sessions. He was a middleweight, and Dempsey was a heavyweight champion of the world, driving Dempsey crazy. Um, Dempsey couldn't speak well enough of him. Uh, but there is a, a legion of young boxing fans out there who insist that because we, there is no footage of him actually fighting, we can't rate him historically high, which is nonsense to me.
1: I agree uh, with you Yeah.
3: It's, it's absolutely ridiculous, and and the fact that um, a lot of younger people apply this across a number of sports, right? Like you know that they think modern baseball players are so much better, and forget about football because you when you watch footage of old football games, it's just laughable. You know the guys are wearing the leather, you know their leather right, heads right, right. and the whole thing. Boxing is boxing, right? I mean, it's two guys in a ring going yeah. at it. Yeah. It, it, the, the technology and the equipment and all this stuff, it hasn't changed, right? So, when you, the quality of the opposition has maybe changed, the willingness of guys to fight anybody. I mean, Harry Greb would fight anybody anytime.
2: Heavyweights. It, yeah. It,
3: it didn't matter, you know, when you look at, or, or you know, uh, guys like Stanley Ketchell. Right. Sure. Are you serious? I mean, Sandy Ketchum would kick everybody's ass today.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so when Rory Jones fought John Ruiz for the heavyweight title, I was working at uh, the Sporting News radio network, and it was funny talking to the hosts who all were like, "That's a big accomplishment," and I'm like, "It's John Ruiz." At, you know, that's what I'm, I'm like. At best, he's the fifth best heavyweight out there. I'm right. like, it's an accomplishment. It's right. not an incredible. I go and I and I did. I play, I'm like. Mickey Walker fighting, you know Schmelling to a draw. I'm like, that's an accomplishment. I'm like, I'm like, guys, I'm sorry. There are other middleweights that did much better, and 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 you know, Roy obviously being a light heavy, you know, prior to the Ruiz fight and stuff. And uh, yeah, I. What well, yeah, yeah, Forgive me, guys. I have to talk about it because it did sadly make a, a noise. This Tyson Jones exhibition, and likely, I, I don't know what the final numbers were, but I'm sure they were equitable to most recent pay-per-views and stuff. And it's really scary because I won't deny, again, from a a fan standpoint, it was fun watching Tyson move around the ring, not so much with Roy Jones, unfortunately, for Roy's point. And I can't deny that I both was fascinated by it, but there is also a part of me that is really scared of watching guys over 50 that are getting in the ring and exerting themselves to that level. And Roy was a classic example of that. I mean, he was just... Winded after the first round, and I think really Tyson took pity on him, frankly. And well,
3: if there, if there is one sport that shouldn't have a senior circuit, <laughs> it is boxing,
0: which is so obvious too. You know, I mean, it's it couldn't be it couldn't be any more obvious. So
2: I'm going to be. What do you think? <laughs> I'm going to dissent here. Uh, unfortunately, I think if these guys, uh, they know the deal going in, right? Uh, They've been fighters all their lives, most of them since they were little kids. right? And you can use that argument against them if you wanted to, by the way, because the more you get hit in the head, the more you're going to have brain damage. But um, a lot of times in, in other areas, we celebrate older people taking chances and doing things they probably shouldn't do. right? Uh, when I see an old guy driving a fast car, and he's driving it like a fast car should be driven, I say, good for you, dude. Don't drive that thing like a station wagon. Drive it like a Corvette. Uh, that might be a bad analogy, but I feel like um, if these guys know what they're doing and they're professional fighters and they want to get paid and they're willing to take that risk. Right. They want to get paid, of course. And they're willing to take that risk. And they're not fighting young guys. Remember, they're not fighting guys in their prime. Yes. They're fighting, old, they're fighting other old dudes.
1: Right. 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 So that kind of
2: evens the score.
1: But Evander at 58, I mean, I just, and again, yeah. you know, I, I, dude, Bill, I hear you and was cheering when George Foreman won and beat Michael Moore at 47 and everything. But it's like 58, Jesus, man. I mean, I and Hopkins being yeah, competitive I'm, I'm, to his fifties. You know, and, it, and it's happening with other, other sports
2: too. Look at Tom Brady, right? Look at right. Tom Brady. Right. He's still, He's maybe the best quarterback in football. Now, what is he, 40? 40 what? Right? 40? No, they're
1: they they they're throwing 50. pictures up with him and Blanda, obviously.
2: Yeah. You know? So, and part of this, again, is that athletes are um, staying competitive much later than they used to, right? Across right. The our father's,
1: right. Our father's 50 is not what 50 is today.
2: Exactly right. I agree um, with that. But the even bigger thing to me is that these guys can get in physical shape and pass a physical, uh, the kind of physical that any younger fighter would pass. And uh, they're not—they don't have any obvious brain damage yet. They almost surely will down the line because very few get out of this sport without it. Um, and they want to do it, and they know what the deal is, and they're going to get paid, and people want to watch it. it. Doesn't doesn't mean I'm going to watch it necessarily. Uh, but I think that there's no, there's no law that should be enacted against. And I'll tell you something else: if Tyson and Holderfield fight again, I will watch the shit out of that fight.
1: <laughs> I hear you. I, I absolutely right. of shit out of that. I'll, I'll watch, watch the Tyson for that matter.
2: I don't know if I'd go that far, but uh ah, 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 I probably would. Uh, but I, well, I would, I would have fun. And and this is, I've said this a few times, and it always comes down to this for me: if you saw Mike Tyson and Evander Holyfield uh, in a parking lot and getting into a fender bender, and they get out of the car and ready to throw hands, would you stop and watch them, or would you get in your car and drive away, or would you start it? try to stop them from fighting. I'd watch. I'd pull up a seat with some popcorn and say, okay, guys, go do it. I want to see what happens here. And to me, that's not that different.
3: <laughs> that's awesome.
2: That's
1: fantastic. Oh, well, Except God. there's
3: always somebody selling tickets, right? That's yeah. that's the difference. Sure. Nobody is selling tickets to the fender bender.
1: Oh, that's true.
2: But it's not I, like the I game mean, ripped off, right? They're, Holyfield's already saying I want 20 million, right? And he'll get it. He'll be broke the next day because i a holy holyfield but he'll get it if people are going to pay for it yeah
1: eddie was you dad oh, i'm sorry Bill. Fini- please finish no, no, no. It.
2: i completely get uh the the objectionable uh nature of it i can and i understand guys who don't dig it uh but i'm more Let me put it this way. I couldn't wait when Foreman and Holmes announced they were going to fight. I couldn't wait for that fight. Everybody was making fun of it. I couldn't wait for it.
0: Well, I was looking forward to that. I was looking forward to that, too.
2: Yeah. Now, there Uh, again, they were in their 40s. You
0: know what? To be honest with you, to be completely honest, if the Tyson-Jones fight had been free to watch or it had been part of the DAZN subscription or my ESPN Plus subscription, I would have watched it. But I wasn't yeah. gonna shell out for 50, right.
1: fifty extra dollars to watch that. I it's funny, I, I bought I bought Tyson Jones. I have no interest in uh, Logan Paul and
2: Oh no, and well, and I Floyd don't either really Floyd,
1: do. you know.
2: Right. And here's the other thing about Tyson, if I may, um and this is unpopular as well. I dude can still fight a little bit.
1: Well that's to be honest, that was the I he give can. him a lot of credit because he did, he moved well, he counterpunched well. Uh, for a 54-year-old man, I thought Absolutely. he dropped the weight. I mean, God, I mean, Roy looked more out of shape than Mike did.
2: Right, right. You and uh, as Mike pointed out after the fight, uh, Tyson's been off way longer than Jones has, right? Um, I can't imagine that Jones would be or that Tyson would be worth anything against a younger guy outside no. of the first three rounds. But for a 54-year-old guy to, to, to execute the moves he was doing in that ring, which a lot of prime young heavyweights don't do. Tyson was a very well schooled fighter,
1: and he still remembers his lessons. Guy can do a little bit yet. Yeah. Well, and that's the problem I think with the modern era. There's so many of these fighters that have converted from other uh, sports in America. They, yeah, yeah, yeah. that they, they just don't have the muscle memory and instincts and reflex uh, moves that guys that did it. You know, ever since they were growing up. And I mean, my God, that's why Ruiz, Andy Ruiz, was able to, you know, do so well against Anthony Joshua. I think. I mean, he kind of showed it.
2: Yeah, I agree. You
1: know, and uh, that real uh, as going around the horn, guys. Outside of the top three, Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder, Anthony Joshua, is there a contender out there that could upset one of those three? Uh,
2: In in my opinion, not right now, not yet. There are a couple of younger guys who may make some noise. Joe Joyce, out of the United Kingdom. Oh right, yeah, that Uh, yes, Uh,
0: yeah, uh, that that we. End of
2: Dubois, yeah, right, right. Um,
1: but is he young? I thought he was older, actually. Maybe he probably
2: not. is older. He probably is. Nobody's young in boxing anymore, apparently. This guy's yeah. turned pro at 35. <laughs> I don't get it. Yeah, but
1: uh, I had hopes for uh, or uh, Luis Ortiz, uh, to uh,
2: another old guy.
1: Yeah, well, and I know. And <laughs> I don't even know if anybody knows how old he is exactly. No, I hear you, man. But I thought, given that he was a southpaw and it seemed to have enough power and uh, boxing skill. I thought he was going to do a bit more. So, Tony says if Jones uh, Tyson Jones can do 1.6 million buys, yeah, Tyson, if, yeah, Tyson Olifield will Absolutely. break. Them. Absolutely. Tony a,
0: Tony's a subscriber to the magazine. Oh, oh, that's awesome.
1: Thanks, Tony.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, Here, Tony. And that's a number that any active champions
1: today would love to have.
4: Mm-hmm. Love that's
1: to great. have that. No question. Eddie, I was going to ask, was your father. Am I right? did the IBC stuff of the fifties and what led to the Senate hearings and stuff that kind of broke on the West coast, wasn't it? I want to say was Jackie McCoy. Was that the promoter that I think wore a wire and um, like. Uh, you know, yeah. Like, I th- I,
3: yeah. I mean, it wasn't specifically just the West coast, but yeah, I, I believe you are right. Yeah. You know, what's fascinating about all that stuff is I have one of the things I inherited from my dad was uh, his set of transcripts of the Senate hearings in organized crime and boxing. And it's pretty interesting reading because when you just get it, you know, it's just like everything that is happening today. Um, Nobody really wants to watch uh, C-SPAN and see these people and, you know, but it is kind of fascinating when you read the whole transcript and you see just, uh, where everybody was coming from. You see the antagonism, you see, like I remember Carmen Basilio's testimony was just fantastic. Yep. 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 Uh, yeah. It, it's really interesting, but yes, that, that was, uh, when my dad was very, became very disillusioned, you know, the whole, uh, Jim Norris thing and, yeah, uh, yeah, it, it it was rough. My dad's big thing—he always uh, was lobbied for a a federal boxing commission. That's what he always wanted to see. He thought because then he, otherwise the crooks are just going to run state to state. You got to have a federal boxing commission. And his big thing was he wanted—he believed that every promoter should pay into a pension fund for boxers. That that was his big deal, you know. Never, never happened of course that's a pipe yeah, dream, yeah. A We're pipe still dream. Talking about it yeah it's not gonna yeah happen. not gonna happen
1: yeah john mccain was trying to make that happen even uh in the 2000s when i was working at sporting news radio well, and there, after, there uh,
3: you go this was my yeah. dad's thing in the 1950s so wow, you man. can see it's just wow. not gonna happen
2: no it's not it's never gonna no, it happen
3: it's, and it's, it's actually uh, it's actually kind of a, a subplot of uh the novel that i'm working on the third uh boxing novel that i'm working on bill i don't know if you ever read my my first one the distance because (laughs) uh, because the heavyweight champ in that book is ezard charles really oh that's awesome so obviously uh, but i had to change the name the whole thing was the whole thing was written as ezard charles and and cincinnati cobra and i did the research and i had his his correct guys handling him and the whole thing. And then at the very end, the publisher said, you can't do this. You got to, you got to change it because, uh, and so he became Chester Carter. And and instead of the Cincinnati Cobra, he became the Jacksonville Jaguar.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's great. It's still funny that you say that uh, Eddie, because uh, I don't know if it's that book, but at some point, when I come across books that I know I should read and that I want to read, but I haven't read yet and don't own yet. I'm um, come across them online. Come across them online. I'll take a snapshot on my phone, and so I have a photo of it to remind myself this is one of the 13,000 books I want to read that I haven't read yet. <laughs> yeah, one of your books is one of them, and uh, and the reason I took it was not because we had this association through the magazine, but because of the piece you wrote about your father that was in one of our what was the second issue? Second issue, yeah. Wow. Really great. And uh, I have to confess, I didn't not only didn't I know you personally, then I'd never heard of you. And that's just because I'm not a movie guy. I didn't, yeah, I'm not yeah, a yeah. movie guy. Uh, but I was kind of blown away by how good the writing was. Oh, um, thank you. And I said before about Glenn Sharpe's piece that the last line was uh, my favorite last line of anything we published. The last line of your piece, if you remember it, yeah. I'm sure you probably do. Lawrence, a close second. And I can say that now because it stuck in my head so much because it was so damn good.
1: It was hey, just, perfect. just perfect.
0: Yeah,
2: and you know, Tony, it and you read it?
1: Yeah, good, good. Hey, um, Tony, thank you. That's awesome, man. Very cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah when you're ready for the third book, Eddie, you got to come back and talk about that. Absolutely. Yeah, I got to finish
3: it first. Then <laughs> he's
0: already <laughs> promised that he's going to feature an excerpt in Ringside Seat. Nice. Oh, that's great, man. Hey, fantastic. That's wonderful. Oh, if
3: you want an excerpt, you can have the excerpt now. Well, <laughs> I
0: mean, there's enough of it written. And that we you talked can, about it. I would it's illustrate. better
3: to do excerpts when there's a book to go buy immediately right, after right. reading. So when,
0: you, when you're ready, the excerpt, and I'm going to illustrate it. I'm going to illustrate it. Fabulous. Fabulous. Very exciting. Like the, old, like the old Esquire, you know, the old Esquire story where they'd have fiction and they'd have illustrations to go uh, with it. Guys, um, it's like
1: my favorite booth at San Diego Comic-Con. There's an art dealer that all he has is illustrations from the magazines of the forties through the fifties oh. and just unbelievable paintings and, and, and drawings of these beautiful illustrations that be in magazines. Just, I
0: spent hours there literally.
3: Yeah. That's the best That is. The should best. show.
0: Let's, we, we should show before, before we, we go is the, the next issue. And Bill has put together an amazing lineup of stories, um, I've got the list up here but Bill if you know it if you can if you know it by heart if you want to talk about what's what's in the issue because it's really great. Issue 13, yeah. Issue 13, yeah. yeah. If You want to show I, the cover John. I do I have the cover? I, I forgive I sent, me. I sent the cover to you. Oh yeah, you did.
1: Um, you know something give me a second and I'll have it in a moment.
2: Yep. I'll start talking in the meantime and I don't have it memorized because I'm old and my memory sucks. But I anticipated you might ask me that Michael so I have it here on my phone. And uh these are the stories in the next issue of Ringside Seat. Uh, Nigel boxing, Nigel boxing. Listen to me; he should change his name to that. That's his Twitter handle. Listen, Nigel boxing. <laughs> <That's>, yeah, <laughs> Nigel boxing. Nigel Collins got a great feature uh, about uh, the villains of uh, boxing over the years, uh, which is uh, always fun to do. Um, Don Stradley, who, if uh, anybody out there, you. Uh, If you're watching this, you've read Don Stroud. you know what a great writer is. He's writing about a corrupt uh, uh, Boston promoter and his connections to the mafioso, which is always fun also. Um, Jason Langendorf is doing uh, a piece that uh, I always come back to, and we all should come back to, and I guess we probably do reflexively, uh, that explores why champions... Uh, always go broke? Why does it happen to fighter after fighter after fighter? Uh, and decade after decade after decade, it just never stops. These guys earn millions and millions of dollars and they go broke. Evander Holfield made $300 million in his career and he claimed bankruptcy. How does that happen? And why does it keep happening over and over and over? So Jason, who's a wonderful writer, and if you read Ringside Seat, you know that, um, is doing That's that. Feature. a
3: great, great idea for a story.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's something we see over and over. Finders are always broke. Joe Lewis is broke, mm-hmm. right? Joe Frazier, the greatest finder we could think of, broke. Sugar Robinson died broke. All these great, great they, they, Yeah. And I should say that we, we shouldn't single out finders because it's the same thing with these guys in the NFL, but whose careers only last like three years on the average, so you can kind of see it. But just guys who Joe Lewis fought for 30 years, right? Broke.
0: There was an ESPN <laughs> 30 for 30 that was all that was called Broke and it was yes. just, all right.
2: is that right <laughs>
1: yep
0: it's just no, you're about, right about that. about football players who yeah, went there
1: you go well are- all those all those duva fighters that Shelly Finkel right. watched over their money and tried to set up with you know yep pensions yeah. and then just annuities and yep yep yeah. still heartbreaking absolutely it, and yeah. it's not it's
3: not exclusively sports because it is a thing where there's right. somebody who is so uh famous and and is the pinnacle of this the entourage that always forms. Right. But I mean, even like actors, like I was stunned when I found out that, uh, Robert Mitchum, you know, his, his financial guy stole all of his money. Yeah, Jesus! You know, th- this was way back, it, you know, in the early fifties,
1: wow. you
3: know, and, uh, you, you get a lot of people around you that you can't trust and you right. don't. And, and when you make that much money so suddenly it doesn't mean anything.
2: Right. You know, right. So you, you just throw a lot of it away. Yep. And especially when you come from an environment where there ain't none.
3: Yeah, right, exactly.
2: All, right? Exactly. Uh, if you guys, if any of you have read Mike Tyson's autobiography, wow. It's just a nightmare, a circus of waste and excess. And you say to yourself when you're reading it, Jesus Christ, why didn't he save any of this? He's blunt. He's buying all of his friends' cars and he's buying every car in the dealership. He's just out of his mind. I remember
1: a a Sports Illustrated article where the guy said he looked in the corner of one room and there was a garbage bag just filled with sports memorabilia like jerseys and things like that and then signed shoes that Tyson had bought over the years and it's just sitting there and you know yeah because
3: you can because you can
2: right exactly Nicholas Cage was broke wasn't he I don't know right right? wasn't Nick Cage broke
1: absolutely he sold his comic book collection and for years I would go to comic conventions and there would be issues that had stickers from the Nicolas Cage collection and everything. Wow. No, absolutely. Yeah.
2: I remember a quote from uh, Muhammad Ali when a writer asked him why fighters go broke. And I'm paraphrasing, but he said something like, giant companies run by the smartest guys in the world go bankrupt. What makes you think some little black boy from the ghetto who's got nothing shouldn't go bankrupt too?" No. It's an argument. It's a good argument, but I'm, I'm, I'm working with Jason and I know that he's going to do this when he writes the feature, um, uh, that there's not just one reason and it's not just one reason for everybody. There's a whole list of reasons that contribute to this. Uh, so that's, um, I think a feature that would be uh, popular. Um, Bobby Cassidy, we talked about, uh, uh, the mafia and that kind of stuff already. Um, Bobby Cassidy, uh, whose father of course famously was, uh, Robert Cassidy, a fighter in Light Heavyweight in the 70s, is doing a feature exploring, uh, let me put it this way, he filed a Freedom of Information Act uh, request from the FBI and got the files that the FBI was keeping on uh, Muhammad Ali and Sonny Liston prior to their fights. Wow. This, yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, so he's writing a feature around that. Um, Ed Groover, who's a good author, with many sports uh, books in his background, is a... Uh, uh, filing a feature on uh, Joe Lewis's Bum of the Month club. seems like a lot of it seems like there's a lot of nostalgia in our magazine, and it, there's always a balancing act on my part to keep some of it modern. I don't always win, but there's just too much stuff. There's just too much great material in boxing, both nostalgic and and modern. Uh, so, uh,
3: no, but I think that that's what's great about it. and I think that's essential. <laughs> uh, you know it's what we do in the Film Noir Foundation magazine as well. It's like here we have, you know, classic noir, contemporary noir. Okay. And and I think it's it's essential for younger people um to to get a, a real strong sense of the sports history, uh so, so that they don't have to listen to people like us
1: right, right.
3: <laughs> lecture them all the time on how great it used to be,
1: you know. Right. Right. I agree with you. It's such a colorful past, absolutely. It's it's what kept me fascinated by it and I'm glad I spend my time writing about it, and it's why I still love to talk about it, even in this capacity. So, no, I, I think. Yeah, but Eddie's our, cover, but our right. cover
0: story is about about the modern fighters. Right. Absolutely it's true. An,
2: right. It's another uh, feature by Ronnie McCluskey. Uh, and uh, he writes about boxing, boxing's best technicians, who are the best technical boxers uh, in the game today. And he makes a strong case for every one of these guys who appear on the list. And those guys aren't uh, the most popular uh, frequently in our sport. That's, that's kind of changing. I feel like, like Canelo Alvarez uh, is up on the list. Who's a wonderful boxer, and he, and in, could com, could have competed in any era, in my view.
0: He wants to fight anybody. That's the thing about Canelo. Yeah. Gonna, yeah. he wants to fight everybody. Yeah,
1: he great. does. And, well, uh, and
0: also like gives a
1: full effort, unlike a Mayweather Jr., who would as great as an amazing technician, taking nothing away from his talent, but would only give you as much as he needed. To to score a win, and I really feel like Canelo gives it all and gives a full a full action fight as well as being a great technician. Yeah, I
2: agree. He steps on the gas. Yeah, he's not always content just to get it, and he'd like to stop you if he could. But uh, what's interesting about it um, is that he's a great great technician, and he's also superstar in terms of you know boxing terms, right? Yes which is different than superstar in hollywood terms I guess or movie terms right but uh absolute killer in terms of his box office appeal and the money he's making but, and he's an outstanding boxer technical boxer great so that's interesting um but anyway ronnie's a uh, very good piece which is, again is on the cover uh this issue uh rates the uh and rates the best technical boxers in the business
1: very cool man issue 13 yep. coming next month yep in february that's that's great Guys honestly this has been a great conversation I really I really appreciate you taking the time and talking and um I uh, you know again I, I think uh, 2021 I'm hoping some of these uh fights happen and uh, the uh the momentum continues think boxing's at a weird it's always in a weird point like you, like you said remind before.
3: me when it when it hasn't been in a weird Yeah point. right
1: exactly right You're right <laughs> 25 years ago I remember Johnny Saracino me and Burt Sugar talking about can you remember it ever being this bad and this was right. 1995 or 94, somewhere around there. So, yeah, you know, that's I know what you is. mean. Yeah I, yeah, I guess. But that's why we love it. Yeah. The, and they might have the, only a guess
3: my, the only time in my life I ever remember anybody saying that there was a renaissance when it was kind of happening was that 70s era of when all those guys came out of the Montreal Olympics. That was. Right. Yep. Sure.
1: Yep. Absolutely right. You know, the uh, uh, really Rockets came out, right. The Sphinx Brothers and, yeah, Leonard and. Howard Davis, yeah, absolutely, yeah, man. Yeah. And it was Crazy. the same
2: time that Michael's favorite boxing movie came out,
0: Rocky. <laughs> Rocky, right. absolutely, that helped a lot. Yeah, yeah. That, but it helps. You know, Steve is going to write a piece, like uh, like a, a piece all about the making of Rocky. Well, I we're really, he's gonna really going to do that. So we're lucky in that
1: you know the end of the Ali era, the the Leonard uh, Hearns and Hagler eras right. began. Right. Right. So right. that was a nice extension, and then into the '90s with the Tyson era. So we really did have a nice stretch
0: of twenty or so years. Well, the guys in the '84 Olympics also—that was was a big deal when 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 they made their they ended up winning winning all the all the medals in the in in the Olympics. That team did very well too. Yeah, I wish.
3: I wish. um, Just thinking about this now, when you mentioned Rocky and all this stuff, I wished we had iPhones back then so that I could have gotten shots of my my old man when I. Go to the movies with him, and I took him to see Rocky. I took him to see Raging Bull. All this, his reactions (laughs) to movies. I mean, Raging Bull especially, because he he did not understand Scorsese's aesthetic. Let's say (laughs) it's rather operatic approach to depicting boxing. So my dad's actually in the audience yelling. Stop the goddamn fight! <laughs> That's,
1: funny. That's funny. That's fantastic. Oh, my God. Man, LaMotta. I, I, we, we encountered him in the 90s. and uh, Well, it
3: took a lot to get my dad to see the movie because it was about Jake LaMotta. And he, and he immediately, just like uh, Don says in the piece, it's like, who would make a movie about that asshole?
0: Exactly. Right. It's, a great, it's a great piece by Don, isn't it? Yeah. Everybody should read Don's piece because yeah, it he really, he really kind of lay, lays bare all that stuff, you know, because so much has been forgotten. And it's like when people think of Jake Lamotta, they think of the movie and they think of Robert De Niro. And, you know, Don really kind of tells it like it is. And he gives a great perspective.
2: Yeah. it, it proves also uh, that if you live long enough and you outlive everybody who knew you when you were a scumbag, everybody just. They just forget, and the people who yep. replaced them don't know. Yep. When I was at the uh, last time I was at the, at the International Boxing Hall of Fame uh, banquet several years ago, Lamotta was there, you know, barely alive. He got the biggest hand of the night when he was introduced because nobody there was around when he was a scumbag. Yeah, exactly. you know, they just they were clapping for this old guy who had a movie made about him and who was you know barely barely alive, but that was a real scumbag. But he we had so that, yeah,
1: we had him on our local uh, Chicago sports TV show in the nineties. And could not have been more unpleasant of a man in a floor nice hotel, and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you, no, nothing was good enough for him, and it of was course. just ridiculous. And yeah, okay. we're like, okay, there you go, lesson yeah. learned. Next time, next time, invite Gene Fulmer, a much there nicer you guy. Yeah, yeah, I agree.
3: <laughs> Somebody's gonna in a movie magazine somewhere. Someone will write the story about Martin Scorsese's career and why he he switches between making movies about Jesus Christ and, and these missionaries, and then the worst people on earth, right? I mean, it's like, that's it. He, it the protagonists are one or the other, right? They're, right. Even, they're, they're <laughs> e- either making this huge sacrifice for some spiritual reason, or they're just scumbags.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, they're the most interesting ones anyway, the scumbags, right? Nobody, wants, nobody cares about nice guys. The scumbags oh, are interesting
1: right? That's hilarious. You're not, True you're enough. not right. That's enough. very funny. So, well, as always, guys, seriously, great conversation. Truly hey, appreciate it. On, I are you kidding? It. Uh, no. Thank you for making such a wonderful magazine and uh, providing uh, some great entertainment when it comes to the sport of boxing. And as always, Eddie, what, do, what are you pointing at Eddie? Pointing I'm, trying, at I'm trying
3: to figure out how to point at Michael on my screen. There you
1: go.
0: There it is.
3: It's him. It's him. It's, <laughs> him. it's that guy. <laughs>
0: Well, and, and um, I'm pointing towards Bill. There you go. We go. To get credit. There we go. credit. <laughs> you know, this would, wouldn't have happened without the three of us and Nigel. Keep Agreed. And,
1: and looking forward to talking to Nigel in the future as well. And no, guys, seriously, it's uh, you really helped revive my excitement about boxing again. I'm not sure. kidding. And uh, so continued success with the magazine. Happy to help out in any way that I can to uh, promote the cause. So uh, let's see here. Yeah, there you go. And then I was just checking to see if anybody else had uh, – Oh, okay. Mike, Mike says that Lamont, of course, comes off as a scumbag. So in
0: real life. There you go. Very well, funny. You know, and I think, Bill – I think it, – it, correct me if I'm wrong. It Don wrote and said in his piece that um, – he and that Lamada and Vicky went and saw the movie, you know, when it first came out. And she turned to him and and and, or he turned to her and said, "Was it really that bad?" And she turned to him and said, "No, you were worse."
4: Yeah. Yep. Thanks.
1: <laughs> thanks nice. okay, so again, John. So- thank you, guys, and thank you, George, for enjoying it, and everyone else who was watching tonight. My kind of talk with Eddie Muller, Mike Cronenberg. At Bill Detloff uh, talking about their fine magazine, Ringside Seat. Uh, you should absolutely pick it up. Um, you can go to their website and uh, subscribe. And also it is available on Amazon as well as a uh, digital and uh, print form. They have uh, annuals that they've done collecting the best articles of each year. And now they're uh, moving to a print edition as well. Really good stuff. And you should check out Noir City as well. their are other great publication that uh, they're all involved in. But I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Word Balloon. Uh, there's also a great conversation about 80s college radio with uh, my buddy Shelley Bond, who has a new Kickstarter of a compendium of stories, including comics, uh, prose, puzzles, games, a bunch of other stuff, all about 80s college radio. And uh, you should definitely uh, check all that out. And also later today, I'll be dropping an episode with uh, my good friend uh, artist and writer Ibrahim Mustafa who has a new science fiction take on the Count of Monte Cristo called Count that's coming out in March from Image. But we also talk about a lot of his other work, including an extensive bit of work about James Bond. So I think you'll enjoy that conversation as well. Ibrahim Mustafa, later today on Word Balloon. Word Balloon is brought to you by Aftershock Comics, a proud sponsor of Word Balloon for a few years now. Love talking to the creators from Aftershock Comics because they are bending genres with exciting stories, great art, and fantastic writing. Definitely books that you won't want to miss. Things like Artemis and the Assassin from my buddy Stephanie Phillips and Megan Hetrick. Fantastic time travel story, great adventure unbelievable stuff with a slant on history. You can also get Cullen Bunn's horror anthology, All My Little Demons, a fantastic omnibus that features the Brothers Dracul, Dark Ark, After the Flood, Night's Temporal, Unholy Grave, the Witchhammer original graphic novel, and two stories from the Shock Anthologies. Great stuff from Cullen Bunn. And coming at the end of February, it's Disaster Incorporated, the complete series from Joe Harris, ...and Sebastian Perez. Really great stuff from Aftershock, all worthy of your attention. Do me a favor, go to their website. You'll find full story descriptions, preview pages of art, and the diamond codes on how to order these books through your local shop at AftershockComics.com. Word Balloon is brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners and their patronage through Patreon, patreon.com slash wordballoon. I hope you consider subscribing to Word Balloon via Patreon. I'm doing my best to present some incredible uh, conversations... With uh, creators of pop culture, whether it's from comics or television or film, I do my best to give you uh, the best coverage and in-depth interviews here at Word Balloon every month. Thank you for your support, League of Word Balloon listeners, via Patreon.com slash Word Balloon. Thanks a lot for listening. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions. Copyright 2021. Stay safe, stay happy, stay healthy.